If only this were a three-step process instead of 12, this journey would be a whole lot easier, and this worship series would be a whole lot shorter. Steps one through three, as we have learned, are essentially the sinner's prayer. I can't, God can, and I choose to give my life over to God. Many an altar call from countless revivals and worship services have culminated in prayers like that with a declaration of surrender and a trust that God is now in charge, not us. In some ways, it may feel like a finish line. Yet if we were to stop there, we would come to the wrong conclusion that there is now nothing we need to do. God's got this and we don't have to do anything. Well, that's why steps four and five of our spiritual journey are so important, because they remind us that we still have a responsibility and even a regular part that we have to play to be on the road toward rising into new life with Christ. Step four calls us to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, to examine anything and everything in our lives that blocks us from the free flow of God's love and peace in and through our lives. Literally, to make a list of the stuff in our attitude, perspectives, and behaviors that do not belong. And step five calls us to share that list with someone that we trust. Turns out that we do have a big responsibility after all. If you look at the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the people of Colossae, the structure looks an awful lot like steps one through four. Chapter one describes the highest power of them all. It's a grand sweeping depiction of the person of Jesus Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn in all creation, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's clearly the higher power of steps one and two. And then in chapter two, we see glimpses of step three, where Paul reminds the church that when they try to do life on their own, they are prone to discord and division and false teachings and self-indulgence. So Paul says in verse six, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. In other words, surrender your life to Jesus. Step three to a T. But then we get to chapter three in today's scripture reading, which is a perfect reflection of step four. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And he calls us each to do a searching and fearless moral inventory of all the stuff in our lives that should not be there. And what a list he comes up with in chapter three. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, and lying. That's a checklist of 12 by my count. And if we can assume that this is a reflection of Paul's own personal moral inventory, then we can say, whoa, Paul, that's quite a list you got there. And I know what's tempting. The temptation is for us to take a list like that and use it as a searching and fearless moral inventory of someone else. 
I can imagine us taking that list of 12 and handing it to that person we're thinking of and saying, you know, by my count, you're six for 12 on this list. But that is not what Paul is saying. And that is not what is in step four. It is to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And as we've often said in this series, it's simple, but not easy. In step four of the 12-step program, a searching and fearless moral inventory can be boiled down to two main words, resentment and fear. Resentment and fear. I invite you to think about how either or both of those characteristics are at play in your life to block the free flow of God's grace and love in your life. You know, at its most basic definition, resentment comes from the root word sentire, which means to feel. Resentire literally means to feel something again and again. Resentment can be a healthy thing, I suppose, when it drives a person to combat injustice or advance a cause for good or to feel again the harm that has been caused by a wrong. Same thing with fear. Fear in and of itself can be a healthy thing. It's a basic part of our instinct for survival. It can ward off threats before they are destructive to us. A, a healthy fear can be a good thing. Resentment can remind us of harm in the past. Fear can warn us of harm in the future. And both can help us survive and flourish. The problem, of course, is that most of the time, the sin in our lives easily warps those two ideals into something destructive and harmful when they are coupled with selfishness. Augustine defines sin as the heart turned inward upon itself. So when resentment and fear become agents for selfishness and self-preservation, it comes at the expense of our relationships with others. And that's when we can cause harm. So we would do well to ask ourselves these questions. Who has been the target of my resentment? How have I been governed by unhealthy fears with others? What are those areas where I need to improve? And naming them and sharing those harmful qualities with someone else that we trust are at the heart of steps four and five. Because if we don't, then we are prone to causing harm to ourselves and others, especially in the area of resentment. In 1882, a New York City businessman named Joseph Richardson owned a narrow strip of land on Lexington Avenue. It was five feet wide and 104 feet long. Another businessman, Hyman Sarner, owned a normal-sized lot right adjacent to Richardson's very skinny one. He wanted to build apartments that fronted the avenue, and so he offered Richardson $1,000 for his very slender plot. Richardson was deeply offended by the amount and demanded 5000 Sarner refused, and Richard called Sarner a tightwad and slammed the door on him. Sarner assumed the land would remain vacant and instructed the architect to design the apartment building with windows overlooking the avenue. But when Richardson, the owner of that skinny lot, saw the finished building, he resolved to block the view. 
no one was going to enjoy a free view over his skinny lot. So 70-year-old Richardson built a house five feet wide and 104 feet long and four stories high with two suites on each floor. And upon completion, he and his wife moved into one of the suites. Only one person at a time could ascend the stairs or pass through the hallway. The largest dining room table in any suite was 18 inches wide. The stoves were the smallest that were ever made. A newspaper reporter of some <clears throat> girth once got stuck in the stairwell. And after two tenants were unsuccessful in pushing him free, he, he exited only by stripping down to his undergarments. The building was dubbed the Spite House. Richardson spent the last 14 years of his life in the narrow residence that seemed to fit his narrow state of mind. The Spite House was torn down in 1915, but in a way, it still stands tall and strong today. It stands in the hearts of many people, and I wonder if there is a Spite House in your own heart. And if that is as true for you as it is for me, then each of us has work to do to conduct a searching and fearless moral inventory of those resentments and fears that damage our relationships with others and trigger our self-destructive habits and hang-ups and hurts. The RISE workbook that many of you picked up and is available now online contains a practical exercise for you to name those resentments and fears, along with the persons and institutions and principles that have been the object of your resentment and fear and anger and bitterness. There is something powerful about acknowledging these forces in our lives and naming them and externalizing them and writing them down it can be a helpful way to confess them to God and say, God, I am weary of carrying this heavy burden, of feeling the same destructive feeling about myself and these other people over and over and over again. These are all the ways, God, that my sin has blocked me from feeling empathy for others along with humility and generosity and compassion. I bring this list to you, God. And step five is to share that list with someone you trust who can hold these thoughts lovingly and help you stay accountable. This is not about confessing to the people that you've harmed just yet. That comes several steps later in a few weeks. But for now, this is about sharing this list with one other person. As you know, if this were an official 12-step recovery program, that person would be called your sponsor. But in this spiritual journey, that person can be anyone close enough to you to understand your situation maybe even gone through it themselves, but still objective enough to hold you accountable toward your own healthy decisions. The poem, Confide in Me, captures the power of this fifth step as an invitation for each of us to take it. And so we close with this poem. When you're tired and worn at the close of the day, and things just don't seem to be going your way, and even your patience has come to an end, try taking time out and confide in a friend. 
Perhaps she too may have walked the same road with a much troubled heart and a burdensome load to find peace and comfort somewhere near the end when she stooped long enough to confide in a friend. For then are most welcome a few words of cheer for someone who willingly lends you an ear. No troubles exist that time cannot mend. But to get quick relief, just confide in a friend. Blessings on each of us as we take a searching and fearless moral inventory of our resentments and fears, confiding in someone else to help us stay accountable, and above all, as Paul said, to set our minds on things that are above. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the light of your love, which enables us to look deep within our hearts and discover that which does not belong. Give us the courage to name our resentments and fears and the persons with whom our relationships are broken. And may that light lead us toward healing and hope and renewed strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.